Hello, everyone. This is Father Bill Nicholas, and this is Faith, Hope, and History. Greetings and welcome, everybody. It is Tuesday, March 16th, 2021. It is on this day that our fourth president of the United States, James Madison, was born in 1751. And on this day in 1966, astronauts Neil Armstrong and David R. Scott, the former of which would become known to history for the first man to set foot on the moon. But on this day, he and David Scott in Gemini 8 rendezvoused and docked with a target vehicle in space, making it the first docking in space. But I come to you just a few days earlier from my usual day in which I would put forth a podcast, and having skipped last week because I was out of town, I wanted to talk to you a little earlier this week because yesterday, on the 15th of March, the Vatican came out with a statement regarding a clarification on whether or not a priest or minister of the church can bless same-sex unions. It should come as no surprise to any Catholic worth their salt that the Catholic Church naturally said that ministers, priests, could not bless same-sex unions because same-sex unions are out of line with what God created human sexuality to be between a man and a woman. And because we go beyond simple animal instincts and we are made in God's image and likeness, it is a permanent union until death. But between a man and a woman, that must, of course, be open to procreation. And certain reactions have uh, come forth in the past day regarding the church's clarification, which really isn't anything new. Uh, So there are a few things I'd like to address with regard to that and the reaction that was put forth by a couple of celebrities. This is not going to be a commentary on what the church teaches, because I think pretty much everybody knows what the church teaches with regard to marriage and same-sex unions. And I'm not going to make any judgments on anybody in this podcast. But it is always interesting when sometimes I talk to people or you hear people commenting on church teaching. And there has been an expectation, at least, that I have seen since Pope Francis became Pope a few years back, that there was a hope that he would change certain teachings of the church. And that comes from a tremendous misunderstanding that many people, even Catholic people have, that the church and the ministers and leaders of the church can change church teachings, which it cannot. Now, on the one hand, one might say, well, it used to teach that you could not eat meat on Fridays, but that is not a teaching. That was a practice, and that was an observance that we did together as a church every Friday during the year. And now that practice is only every Friday during Lent. And there are other such practices that have adjusted, not just recently, but also over time. But when we're talking about the moral law, which is built upon natural law, and other key features of church teachings, centralized teachings, the church does not have the authority to change those teachings. The pope does not have the authority to change those teachings. The commission that Jesus gave the church is to teach those teachings, to put forth the gospel, not to change it, to proclaim the gospel not to change the teachings of the gospel in order to cater to some popular zeitgeist or moral wind of a particular given era. So many people believe, and some have even tried to lecture me, and as I've seen other priests, that, oh yes, the Pope does have the authority 
to change church teaching. And even Pope Francis, as liberal as people like to think he is, has made it very clear. He does not have the authority to change church teaching. And so it should come as no surprise to anyone, especially a Catholic worth their salt, that the church would maintain this teaching. Yes, we are called to be compassionate to everybody and welcoming to everybody, just as Jesus was welcoming to everybody. But that welcome does not mean we condone or suddenly approve or change the teaching, particularly when it deals with natural law, which leads and lends itself to moral law. To give you an example, Jesus told the woman caught in adultery. After he said, he who is without sin cast the first stone, he asked her, where has everyone gone? Has no one condemned you? And the woman said, no one, sir. To which Jesus said, nor do I condemn you. Now, if Jesus had done this in the modern world, the story would end right there when he said, nor do I condemn you, and all the headlines the next day would say, Jesus condones adultery, or Jesus changes the teaching on adultery. When he does no such thing, the fact that he said, he who is without sin cast the first stone, does not mean we never criticize or that we are ever critical of anyone for anything. Because the story goes on, he said, I do not condemn you, go and sin no more. There's still a proviso with that statement. I do not condemn, but go and sin no more. Jesus will always give us that opportunity for conversion and always give us that opportunity to change a lifestyle or a practice or a habit that we have so that we can live more in conformity with how we are supposed to live as people and beings made in God's image and likeness. Once we have died, we no longer have that opportunity. But as long as we are alive, Jesus will always give us that opportunity and he says, I do not condemn you, but go and sin no more. He does not say that to change the teaching on adultery. In the same way, the church says we should not push away people simply because they engage in practices that the church considers sinful. Jesus called sinners, and all of us are sinners. There is not a single human being who is not a sinner. And Jesus welcomes us, yes, but that welcome includes the command to go and sin no more, to constantly work to overcome that sin, to never make up excuses to continue in sinful behavior, and always take the opportunities in our lives to improve our lives insofar as we turn away from sin. But the church does not have the authority to change teaching. The second thing I want to address is the whole question of blessing marriages. Because the question was, can a priest or a minister of the church bless same-sex unions? And before I even get into same-sex unions, I want to talk about the whole question of blessing marriages. Now, first of all, the ministers of the sacrament of matrimony are the bishop, who can perform all seven sacraments, the priest, who can administer all but two sacraments, ordination and confirmation. He can confirm with proper delegation from the bishop, and a deacon can do only two sacraments, marriage and baptism. And so the ministers of the sacrament of matrimony are the bishop, priests, and deacons, all three levels of holy orders. But the whole idea of blessing marriages, what is meant by blessing marriages? First of all, Catholics are bound by obligation to be married in the Catholic Church. If they are married at City Hall or married in some purdy outdoor location without the proper dispensation from the church, a Catholic marrying outside the church or non-sacramentally is not married in the eyes of the church. That marriage is invalid. 
In short, there is no marriage to bless. People will often say, well, we were married at City Hall. We went and we got married in Vegas. So we had a pretty location in the woods where we got married and we came to the church for the church to bless our marriage. No, there's no marriage to bless. The church does not recognize that marriage of a Catholic married outside the Catholic church. What they're talking about is a convalidation, a convalidation in which the marriage is made valid. And how is that marriage made valid in the eyes of the church? By going through a sacramental wedding, going through the sacramental rite of holy matrimony. And so when we talk about the church blessing marriages, it simply doesn't do that. It goes through the preparation process, and it goes through the rite of the sacrament of marriage. And then in the eyes of the church, that is when the couple is married, the Catholic couple is married. But outside the Catholic Church, for a Catholic, it's not considered a valid marriage and therefore is treated not as a marriage. So when they come to have, quote-unquote, the marriage blessed, they are in fact preparing for the sacrament of holy matrimony and to get married. And not to get married in the Catholic Church. It's to get married, period, because for Catholics there is no marriage outside the Catholic Church. So when the question is asked, Can a same-sex couple come to the church to have their relationship or their union blessed? The same language is being used with regard to a heterosexual couple married civilly coming to the church to have that union blessed. It's not a blessing. It is the sacrament of marriage, but you can see where the confusion could cause some problems. That a heterosexual couple can have their marriage blessed Why can't a same-sex couple have their marriage blessed? And the answer is, it's not a blessing. It's a convalidation. And so, we have gotten into the bad habit of misunderstanding the whole dynamic of sacramental marriage to which all Catholics are called, if indeed they are called to be married, which I, as a priest, am not. We also talk about marriage being a right And the government has gotten involved in that debate because people love to throw around anything that they want or want to do as a right. In the Catholic Church and in any Christian faith worth its salt, marriage is not a right. It is a vocation. It is a calling that not everyone has. As a priest, I am not called to be married. A priest may want to be married, But as a priest in the Catholic Church, he is not called to be married. He doesn't have the vocation of marriage. And not everyone who's not a priest is necessarily called to be married. There are people who are called to the single life. There are people who are called to the religious life. And so those two ways we approach marriage, especially in our society today, we say that marriage is a right. It's not a right. It's a calling. It's a vocation. And we say that if one is married outside the church, they can come and have their marriage blessed. There is no blessing, only convalidation, which is, in effect, the sacrament of marriage. Because the church doesn't recognize a marriage of a Catholic done outside the church. So given that, the third thing I want to address are those who raised an issue with regard to the church's statement. And one in particular... Uh, really often you know, sits badly with me because it is a bad habit that many people have gotten into with regard to their approach to faith and religion. But CNN's uh, anchor, Don Lemon, sent out a tweet shortly after the Vatican made its statement. 
And that tweet stated, God is not about hindering people or even judging people. Now, later I'm going to get to what exactly he said. But also later in the day, Elton John, the superstar, rock star, made a statement heavily criticizing the Vatican for its uh, statement. My question in light of all this is, first of all, are these men Catholic? My presumption is no, but I could be wrong. Do they have any kind of Catholic background? But let's assume anyone who has this objection is Catholic. One would think that if one is a true Catholic, then for them the church would be a guide as to how they should live, a guide to proper living, and that the church's teachings, especially its moral teachings, would be a thing of influence to them, as it should, because we say we are Catholic, we would follow the teachings of the Catholic Church. We don't become Catholic, or we are not Catholic, expecting the church to change its teachings. The church is there for guidance and sanctification, to make disciples of all the nations, to live as Jesus calls us to live. We don't sit as a group of Catholics waiting for the church to change its teachings. As Catholics, we look to the church for guidance and direction according to the basic principles of the gospel and the basic tenets of God's law that we read in the Old Testament. The Ten Commandments, especially in the Old Testament, and Jesus' teachings in the New Testament. So if these people are Catholic, then why is it not a priority that the church's guidance is something important that should be listened to, respected, and adhered to? If they are not Catholic, then why do they care what the Catholic Church teaches? Now, don't get me wrong. If they do, I am glad, because it shows that Catholic teaching and the Catholic Church still continues to have a major impact and a major influence beyond the Church to the world around it. Even those who are not Catholic care deeply what the Catholic Church teaches and really care when the Church maintains consistently its traditional teaching with regard to moral law. We saw how the world reacted with regard to Humanae Vitae. And it wasn't just Catholics who were upset with maintaining the teaching against artificial forms of birth control. But it was even beyond the church. And for those who are not Catholic, who get so upset, my question is, if the church does in fact change its teaching regarding Humanae Vitae and birth control, and regarding its statement yesterday, on same-sex unions, if the church does in fact change its teaching, does that mean you're going to join the Catholic Church and become Catholic? I'm willing to wager no. So it comes back to the question, why do they care? And the answer is good news for us as Catholics. As much criticism as we get for our teachings, as countercultural as we are, and even as much as people may simply flatly ignore the church's teaching, including many Catholics, they still care what the church teaches. It still sticks in their craw when the teaching of the church is countercultural. And especially those who are not even Catholic, it still bothers them that the Catholic Church maintains its teachings on morality. And so that's a point I think is important to notice as the church reaffirms that 
same-sex unions cannot be blessed by the Catholic Church. Those who are getting upset about it are people who are either not Catholic or have left the Catholic Church because of this teaching or who are still within the Church and not following the Church teaching. And all I can say is, what reaction did the Church expect from them? People don't want guidance from the Church. They want approval. And when they don't get approval for something that perhaps should not be approved of, they get very, very upset. And that, in many ways, is why they care. They want that approval from an institution as large and as old and as historical and as authoritative as the Catholic Church. It still means something in this world. Now, on to the words of Don Lemon of CNN. He sent out a tweet that said, God is not about hindering people or even judging people. Who says that? Since when was God not about judging people? We hear it constantly in the scriptures. There's a whole passage in the Gospel of Matthew. It's called the Last Judgment, in which Jesus has people on his right and on his left, and they are judged by their actions in this life. I was hungry and you gave me food. I was hungry and you did not give me food. We look in the book of Revelation, toward the end of the book of Revelation. People are judged by what they did in this life. Are their names in the book of life? And how are they judged according to the scroll of deeds? There is judgment and assurance of God's judgment throughout the Bible. So who ever said that God was not about judgment? Also, he said, God is not about hindering people. Now, the Ten Commandments do a lot of hindering. It hinders us from killing. It hinders us from committing adultery. It hinders us from stealing. It hinders us from bearing false witness against one's neighbor. It hinders us from coveting. The law of God throughout the Old Testament hinders us from sin. There's plenty of hindering. There's also affirmation of what we are called to do, be good to the poor, worship God alone, and so on. But to say that God is not about hindering people, God is not about letting people do whatever it is they want to do with impunity. God has given us commands. Jesus has reaffirmed and expanded on those commands. And so it is the height of naivete that a person like a news anchor would make these declarations, which makes me happy to know that he's read the Bible and found this. I'd love to know the passage where he read this. But also, this is something we see all too often in our world, as well as in our Catholic Church. And I'm sure there are plenty of people out there, maybe Some are guilty of it to a certain degree. Maybe all of us are guilty of it to a certain degree, but we know we've experienced people who are this way to the nth degree. And that is faith. Whether it's Catholic faith or Christian faith, faith is, for many people, nothing more than wishful thinking and imaginary friends. They aren't looking to what church teaching is, They would rather tell you what they want church teaching to be. 
And when you look at people like Don Lemon, and he's not the only one out there. I have a YouTube page, and every now and again I'll get comments from people from my homilies or from the, uh, the teaching videos and the series that I have, and they'll often say, well, if God were God, this is the way he would be. I remember hearing one a celebrity who declared in an interview he was atheist, and he came to that decision after much discernment and reflection that there is no God. And then he explained how he came to that conclusion, that Christianity teaches that there is a God of love, that there is a God who's all-powerful and who loves us. But then he looks around and sees children suffering, innocent people suffering. And his conclusion is, if God were almighty, he would stop this suffering. And if God were a God of love, he would not allow this suffering to occur. Now forget that one of the most ancient books of the Old Testament is the book of Job, which deals with that very question. And I seem to remember someone in the New Testament saying that during what was called the temptation of Jesus in the desert. If you are the Son of God, I would like to ask anyone who draws these kinds of conclusions, if God were God, what's the rule book you have been reading on how to be God? Where you look up the rule book, you know, chapter 5, section 4, paragraph 3, sentence 2 says, if God is God, this is what he does. Where's this rule book that people seem to have found where you can look up and declare, well, God obviously is not God because he's not following this particular rule that I have determined for God. See, these are all rule books that we have written in our own mind, in our own attitude, in our own disposition. I won't call it faith. In which we declare what kind of God God should be. And we reduce God to nothing more than an imaginary friend. You know, one, one may as well say, you know, you are a Christopher Robin person, but I'm a Winnie the Pooh person myself. I kind of like rabbit. Maybe you like owl. God's nothing more than an imaginary friend. And we hear a lot of this reflected in a popular question that people have asked since, I think, the late 60s. Is the question that people ask, well, what would God do? And what would God say? And that is applied a lot to the whole issue of human sexuality. Because we say God is a God of love, we say, well, if God's a God of love, then it's all about love. And yeah, the church has its rules, and we know what the church's rules are. But forget the church's rules. What would God say? And of course, we all know what God would say. Do we? Do we really? Let me go on record here. I don't care what God would say. I care what God did say. I don't care what Jesus would say. I care what Jesus did say. And time and time again, we are clear in the scriptures. And time and time again, we are clear in the teachings of the church that Jesus commissioned to bring forth the gospel as he gave it to us. We are clear time and time again what the teaching is on the moral law, even when some teachings do change in the Bible, such as the dietary laws. That's another one of my favorite rule books that if God is God. Yes, the book of Leviticus forbade the people from eating shellfish, but now we can eat shellfish. So therefore, we can engage in sexual behavior that is sinful because that changed. Obviously, this 
teaching can change as well. But when you look, even in the New Testament, anytime Jesus lightens up or lifts or modifies the teaching on the diet, it is always followed up by Jesus maintaining the moral teaching. An example, what goes inside a person does not defile them, but what comes from within defiles. And among the things that he says comes from within is adultery and licentiousness, sexual sin, moral sin. So he has lightened up on the teaching regarding the diet and what we can and can't eat. But each time he does, he maintains the moral teaching. And then in the Acts of the Apostles, the same thing. The Council of Jerusalem gathers, and after much discussion with regard to how we receive Gentiles into the church, the church does, in fact, lighten up on its dietary laws and the law regarding circumcision. And then right after that, it states, you are to avoid illicit sexual union and paganism among other things. But anytime the dietary rule is changed or modified, the moral law is maintained in the same passage and in the same context of Jesus speaking to his people or the apostles making a declaration. Because dietary observances and practices are incidental, moral law and moral teaching is not incidental. So again, who are people to say, well, now we can eat shellfish and pork. Therefore, we can engage in sinful behavior, immoral behavior. And who are we to make that declaration according to a rule book on how to be God that we have written? And the attitude that, of course, oh, God would simply go with whatever has to do with love, again, is nothing more than wishful thinking. We're not speaking from any real knowledge we're speaking from wishful thinking and reducing God to an imaginary friend. So when people ask, what would God do? What would Jesus say? Let them answer that question for themselves, and I'll bet you anything. God would say exactly what I'd say. Jesus would do exactly what I'd do. Shazam! Who'd have thunk? But when you ask the question, what would Jesus say? Maybe the best way to answer it is with another question. What's the last thing you would want Jesus to say? Knowing he would never tell us to commit sin. Sin is off limits. So again, if our imagination and our imaginary friend named Jesus is going to tell us, oh, same-sex unions or any kind of illicit sexuality is about love, which by the way, it isn't, not about love. We've got to stop saying it's about love. It's about human sexual pleasure. But anytime they simply say Jesus would reduce marriage to nothing more than human sexuality and hedonistic pleasure, then that is reducing Jesus to an imaginary friend, and what he would say is nothing more than wishful thinking. But when we ask the question, what is the last thing we would want Jesus to say, that is usually the best clue as to what he would say because we have examples of what he did say. Let me give you one of them. The rich young man comes to Jesus and says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He wants assurances. He wants to know he's doing the right thing. 
And Jesus said, follow the commandments. You know the commandments, follow them. It's not rocket science. You know the commandments, follow them. And the rich young man says, I have observed all these since my youth. Now, what would Jesus say? Well, plenty of people would probably think Jesus would say, you're doing just fine. Keep doing what you're doing. You're going to make it. You're doing just fine. Don't worry. No. What did Jesus say? He looked at him, not with hate. It said he looked at him with love and said, you have more to do. What was the last thing the rich young man would have wanted to hear from Jesus? And that's what he heard. Go sell all you have and give to the poor. That certainly didn't ingratiate Jesus to the rich young man because he walked away unhappy. To which Jesus said, it is difficult for the wealthy to enter the kingdom of heaven. But then the apostles immediately jump on that and say, well, we've given up everything to follow you. What would Jesus say to that, according to the people who've reduced him to an imaginary friend? Oh, you've given up everything for me? You're doing great. You're on your way. You've made it. Don't worry. You're doing fine. No, that's not what Jesus would say, because we know what Jesus did say. He said, you will get it back a hundred times with persecutions. With persecutions. This to this group of faceless cowards who abandoned him in the Garden of Gethsemane at the first sign of trouble. Now, eventually, we know the apostles did have the courage to give their lives. And for all we know, the rich young man did have the faith and the fortitude to sell all he had. But this was not a question of what would Jesus say. It's what did Jesus say. And what he said was the last thing the rich young man and the apostles would have wanted to hear. And there are other such examples throughout the scriptures. So we can't sit back and listen to what the church reaffirmed to no surprise whatsoever of any Catholic worth their salt and come off saying, well, that's not what God is all about. How would you know if your basic understanding is the church does not represent the teachings that have been given to us by God? How would you know if you have reduced God to nothing more than an imaginary friend and church teaching as nothing more than wishful thinking. And so that's something I wanted to bring up as the church and the world continue to process what the Catholic Church reaffirmed in the answer to the question with regarding the blessing of same-sex unions. When you hear people say, oh, the church is wrong because God would never do that, don't take them seriously. They have no idea of God. If they don't already know what God did say, what Jesus did say, what Jesus did, then there's no point in asking the question, what would he do? No one should care what Jesus would do. We know what he did, and we know what he said. And instead of reducing God to an imaginary friend who agrees with us in everything, and church teaching that needs to be catered to our worldliness, rather than us having to convert to the standards God has given us as people made in his image and likeness, then why should you care what the church says? It obviously doesn't mean anything to you anyway, but the fact that it does mean so much to so many people that it makes them upset when the church maintains its moral teachings especially, that's good news for us as Catholics because as much as the church is berated and put down and considered old-fashioned, non-politically correct, it's good news for us that when the church maintains its teachings, it does cause waves. 
and it is an influence in this world. Even if people don't follow it, it still bothers them that the church cannot change its teachings. So those are my thoughts uh, for this day, and I will get back to a regular series that I was starting uh, in which without faith, there is no freedom. Without faith, there is no science. And my next step in that series is without faith, there is no country, meaning the United States. And I hope to talk about that in my next uh, podcast, unless I get distracted by something else in our current events. But I thank you for listening and hope to uh, be with you again soon. Thank you.